But this week we have Joe Wilson with us. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Joe Wilson. He likes long walks on the beach and Orioles baseball. So those are his two loves right there, I think. Yeah, he's a big Orioles fan, a Baltimore guy. I was at Fort Christian Church for 24 years, I believe he told me a little bit earlier today, and um, stepped out of that role. It felt like God was leading him out of that. Um, their associate guy, kind of like here, came on and as the lead pastor and has been in that role, I think, for four years, a little over four years now. Uh, Josh and is doing a great job. Joe's an amazing guy. I, Joe and I have met briefly a couple of times over the past probably 10 to 15 years. Uh, Joe's one of those guys, you never hear anybody say negative anything about Joe. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to hearing him speak today. Um, right now, he works for Pioneer Bible Translators and helps train and coach brand new people who are going into that field. And so I know he's incredible at that from what I've heard. So we're looking forward to having him here today. Uh, make sure you welcome Joe when he gets up here on stage and, and see him later on. Uh, don't forget today, if um, as we leave today, we have our summer treats. Our summer treats will be outside. I have no clue what it is, so enjoy those, whatever those may be. But we are glad that you're here this morning. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Yeah, good morning to you too, man. That's great. Uh, I am Joe Wilson. I, I work with a group called Pioneer Bible Translators as a coach and a mentor for young missionaries. I'm excited to be with you today. I don't know what that Nationals Night Out is, but I'd like to volunteer for the bullpen. Okay, whatever that sounds like. You guys need a little help there, right? I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, we're in uh, 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 week three of a sermon series called Rivals, and uh, I love this because from the very start, it tells us, you know, the Bible's not a book made up of fairy tales. Uh, the Bible doesn't hide humanity. It doesn't hide the flawed nature of its characters. And uh, in fact, in some of the characters that, that, that were presented to me in my young Sunday school days uh, as heroes, as I, as I look now as an adult and I read about those folks, I see they're very flawed people, which is good news because if the Bible is a book filled up of examples of perfect people, I'd never be able to relate to it because I'm messed up. But because it presents us with these people who sometimes make horrible choices, I can say, hey, you know, maybe there's hope for me, right? Because if God could love those people, and if God can use those people, then he might be able to use me too, right? And in fact, I know that he, he can. So we have these examples of people who have problems on the inside of themselves, and sometimes they have these problems with each other that, that create great tension. And that's the case today as we look at an ancient set of rivals, a couple of characters named Jacob and Esau. Now, the story of Jacob and Esau unfolds over 12 chapters of Scripture. So, obviously, we're going to read all 425 of those verses together this morning, right now. Yeah, we are not going to do that. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and we need some context. We're going to go 
kind of from the start, and I'll try to work our way through a lot of narrative passages here. So to quote uh, the great theologian Jerry Reed, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, all right? So we're going to jump into this lesson on bitter rivals, these twin brothers, a couple guys named Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25 says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. She couldn't have any children. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? In other words, she's saying, man, if this pregnancy is a result, is an answer to prayer, why is my body at war with itself? You know, pregnant women can be such whiners sometimes. I'm just, no, I'm just messing around, man. That's not true. Uh, hey, well, here's the deal. You know, God, <laughs> we're just in, man, right? I mean, I, I'm, somebody's going to come up here and show me the door. Uh, God answers her prayer. God answers her question. So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, uh, they want to have children. Isaac is a little bit advanced in age. They pray. Not only does Rebecca conceive, she's going to have twins. And the pregnancy is rough. Because the, the rivalry between her two boys starts inside the womb. Even there, they're jockeying for position. And when she inquires from God, hey, why do I feel so bad? Why am I struggling like this? God gives her a theological, geopolitical answer not a medical one. He says, you know, you're not just carrying boys, you're carrying nations inside of you. And by the way, God adds, your firstborn, he's not going to be the one through whom my promise goes. In fact, that's going to be the younger. The older will serve the younger. Notice the text. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Two boys, descriptive names. The name Esau means hairy, okay? The name Jacob literally means grabber. Or kind of the subtext of that is somebody who's tripping someone else up. A supplanter, a usurper, a con man, really. It'd be like naming your kids Wolfman and Conman, you know? <laughs> so these two characters couldn't have been any more dissimilar. And we read it right in the Bible, verse 27 in the passage says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. You know, Esau had a subscription to outdoor life. Jacob had a subscription to Scientific American. Esau was practicing with his bow. Jacob was reading Thoreau, right? Esau's fixing the carburetor with his dad. Jacob's helping mom with the laundry. And that's why the next verse reads, Isaac loved Esau because of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Friends, this family was just full of dysfunction. There was serious favoritism that's going on from the parents' point of view, and the two boys couldn't have been more different from each other. Esau had, was his father's favorite, and in those days, that's really what mattered the most. 
You know, today we joke around with the phrase, you know, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? But that wasn't much of a, a thing back then, right? That's a patriarchal society. And mom didn't have the same level of influence, necessarily. This was Isaac's family. And what Isaac thought is what mattered. And Esau was the oldest. He was the firstborn. And that meant Esau was going to get two-thirds of the inheritance. He was going to get twice as much as Jacob, a double portion. And he was also going to receive a ceremonial blessing from his father. Which brings me kind of the first observation of this narrative, which is this. Family competition breeds relational pain. This issue of favorites would bear itself out even into the next generation even more with Jacob and his son Joseph. And so this is sort of a generational bad example which gets repeated. Strife between brothers, favoritism from parents. How much better is it when families really work at living in harmony with each other. In fact, Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And I love how the, the CEV version puts this. It says, It's truly wonderful when relatives live together in peace. Well, that was rarely the case in this family. But Jacob and Esau did coexist with each other for a long time. Time passes in the home of their father to the point where these boys are now in their 30s. But there's still rivalry going on. They're still jockeying for position. They both know that the blessing of the firstborn is under dispute. And there is this tension that exists into their young adulthood. Notice, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, it says his name was called Edom. Now, the Bible adds that little last note on there about Esau because Esau's nickname was probably Red, you know, because of his complexion, because of the color of his hair. And, and in, in Hebrew, the word Edom is the same thing as Red, Red for, for what he looked like. And Esau's descendants later would be called the Edomites. Don't know what that means fully. But here's Jacob. He's cooking this red lentil stew. And Esau comes in, he's exhausted, and he says, I need some of that. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank, and he rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the story here is that Esau goes out hunting. He doesn't go prepared enough for the trip because when he gets back, he's famished. He's dying of starvation, dying of thirst. And Jacob, the grabber, the schemer, the con man, sees a way to grab what he desires, the promise to the firstborn, the bigger portion of the inheritance, the greater blessing from his father. And just like that, Esau caves. He's so hungry, he's willing to pay whatever price. Now, there's no documents exchanged here, but there's an oath at stake, and Esau relinquishes his rights as firstborn for a cup of stew. Now, before we throw too many stones here, folks, how many of us at times may have been put in that same category? A momentary weakness, and we exchange something valuable for something fleeting because of our appetite. Just so we can feel better about ourselves, how many of us can say that we hurt a relationship just so we could get in the last word? 
just so we could get that final zinger in that makes us feel good for a moment, right? And then you see the blood drain from the person that you're arguing with. And you think, ah, I've destroyed this because of a comeback. People have cashed in reputations for their money. They've exchanged marriages and full-time access to children because of a night of passion. And Esau gives up an inheritance for lentil stew and bread. So observation number two in this journey we're taking together today is that we've got to think beyond the current moment. When you're faced with a decision, think beyond now. Think beyond the next 24 hours. If I do this thing, what kind of impact is it going to have on my character? What kind of impact will it have on my reputation, on my relationships, on my future? Proverbs 13, 16 says in the New Living Translation, wise people think before they act. Fools don't and even brag about their foolishness. Man, how many political careers could have been saved if people just knew that one verse in Scripture? Just one, right? I mean, God's Word, I feel like, is so encouraging to us because it helps us to live effectively. It's just so practical. But Jacob and Esau, they just kind of continue with this foolishness. When Jacob and Esau are 40 years old, their father comes to the point where he's going to bless them into their own homes and into their own lives. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Who's going to get the blessing, right? Which one of the twins is going to get the greater blessing? Or will the father relent and bless both of them somehow, together? Genesis 27 says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out into the open country and hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, we know from hindsight, Isaac wasn't actually dying here. But it was time for his sons to go on and marry and amass their own lands and flocks. But still, the family's in such dysfunction. It's still messed up. Because the next verse reads, But Rebekah... Isaac's wife, but Rebekah overheard that what Isaac had said to his son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I'll bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks, bring in two fine young goats. I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. Now, there are so many problems with this plan, not the least of which Jacob points out right away. He says in verse 11, Jacob said to, to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and I'd bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say and go out and get the goats. So Jacob goes, he gets the goats, and his mom makes the meal. And she gets a great idea of how to trick her husband while she's making the meal. I mean, she's already killing the goats for the food, right? Why not use the skin and the hair of the goats to put Jacob in a disguise? Now, when I read that, my first thought is, how hairy was Esau? I mean, well, I think we actually have a picture from history here. Yeah, so there's Esau, I think. 
lots of hair. And so what Jacob does is he puts on his brother's clothes and he puts on some goat hair and goat skin and he lies to his father. Verse 18 says, he went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up, eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Now you read through that, that chapter and there are at least three times in this passage that Jacob lies to his father and says, I'm Esau, I'm Esau, I'm Esau. Friends, I want you to think about something. When God told Rebekah that Jacob would be the son of promise, that the younger one would be the son of promise, he didn't say anything about that being linked to an earthly inheritance, did he? I mean, if God's going to bless Jacob, that could be so much greater than anything his father Isaac could do for him. But Jacob and his mother were so fixated on this earthly inheritance, on this earthly blessing, they missed the fact that God could be up to something bigger than that. So first, Jacob swindles his brother Esau out of the inheritance for the sake of a bowl of porridge. Now he swindles him out of the family blessing, this kind of father's spiritual blessing for the will of the household. Notice what happens. After Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. And then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And his father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered. Your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently. Who was it then? that hunted that game and brought it to me. I ate it just before you came in and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. And when Esau heard his father's word, he burst into a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. Man, what a horrible train wreck of a scene. Verse 35 says, but he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Grabber. This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright. Now he's taken my blessing. And then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Bear with me for a third observation here. And that is, you don't accomplish godly ends by being ungodly. You don't. Did Jacob really think that he was earning God's favor by using trickery and deceit? I mean, one of the basic top tens from God, right, is don't lie. But here, Jacob keeps weaving one lie after another at the encouragement of his mother to achieve something that God has already promised. And instead of waiting on God's timing, they kind of try to short-circuit the unfolding of, a, of natural events. They rush the process. And friends, people do this all the time, right? We're horrible at waiting. We're horrible at waiting on God. We're horrible at waiting on anything in this life. We always want to rush to what we think we deserve or what we think is next. I mean, how many people have gotten into debt because they couldn't wait on something good? And they just jump in bad timing. Or how many people have jumped into get-rich-quick schemes because, you know, the other way around just seemed too long, too hard? How many people have jumped prematurely in or out of a relationship? because they weren't willing to navigate the journey over the long haul. And we were so impatient. 
I heard about a young woman who really thought she'd been very patient with her boyfriend. Long period of dating, no talk of marriage. One night, her boyfriend takes her out for a Chinese restaurant. He looks over the menu. He casually asks her, so how do you want your rice, plain or fried? And without missing a beat, she said, thrown. I want my rice thrown, okay? Uh, you know, it's one thing to be impatient with people. It's another thing completely to be impatient with God. Those results are always disastrous. And this situation is no difference. Jacob stole the blessing. He makes an enemy like that. And it was so unnecessary. Verse 41 says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that a shame? And notice what happens next. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. So dad's getting ready to die. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. This sounds like something right out of the Godfather, right? Jacob has now become Fredo. You know, he's on a clock. When Rebekah was told that her older son Esau had said this, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother's no longer angry with you or forgets about what you did to him, I'll send word to you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, notice this, I'm disgusted with living here because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from one of the women of this land from the Hittite women like these, my life won't be worth living. Watch this, next chapter. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. And then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padanaram, to the house of your mother's father's Bethuel. Take yourself a wife from there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So in keeping with the great theology from my big fat Greek wedding, the man might be the head of the family, but the woman is the neck, right? That turns and moves the head. Rebecca says, I need Jacob gone. I'll give, I'll give Isaac an excuse. And off Jacob goes. Now, folks, there is so much of this story that I would love for us to have the time to dig into. There's more chapters to be included, but, but 20 years pass, all right? Jacob and Esau are older than me at this point. Jacob married two of his cousins, sisters, which is a whole other story. I mean, you've heard of sister wives. These are really sister wives, okay, and there's issues. Jacob works for his father-in-law as a dowry because he doesn't have any money because he had to flee the country. His father-in-law's name was Laban, and he was an even bigger cheater than Jacob. And he takes advantage of Jacob for pretty much 20 years, cheats him. And now Jacob is the one, the shoe's been on the other foot. He's been the one being cheated. And it comes time where Jacob just can't live there anymore, and he has to go back home. I wish we could go into this more. You'll just have to imagine the 20-year montage of pictures, right? Marriages, weddings, Kids being born, flocks being raised. Now Jacob's a rich man. He's headed home, but he's worried. Because 20 years previous, when he left home, his brother had said, I'm going to kill you. Now how is his brother going to respond now that he's going back, now that he's returning? He's concerned to say the least. Genesis 32 says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, he instructed them, this is what you're to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. 
I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants, and now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Now, Jacob is really hoping that Esau is forgiving. I mean, it's been 20 years, but who knows? Jacob had done some changing, but had Esau done any changing? So he sends these really elaborate gifts ahead of himself to kind of take the temperature of his brother. But he doesn't get the result that he's hoped for. When the messengers returned, the Bible says, to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Again, to quote another theologian, Gary Coleman, what you talking about, Willis? I mean, is this a 400-piece marching band? Is it like a 400-member chapter of Mensa? Or is it like a 400-man army? And the context makes it seem like it's the last one. So it says, that night Jacob got up and he took his two wives and his female servants and his 11 sons and he crossed the fjord at Jabbok. And after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions so that Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is a really interesting story. It could take up a whole morning by itself. But the, the gist of this is that Jacob is nervous about going home, right? He's nervous about meeting his brother Esau for the first time because the last time he saw him, there was trouble. There's a death threat. So he sends his family across the river, his possessions across the river, and he's all alone now on the opposite side of the river wrestling with his thoughts. He's wrestling with his prayers. And somewhere along the way, he begins to literally wrestle with this figure. Now, what's the goal of wrestling? To pin the opponent, right? Right? to get the opponent to the ground. And while the text says that he's wrestling a man, it becomes evident through this that who Jacob is really wrestling, he's wrestling some kind of representative of God, an angel, a manifestation of God's presence, and he just refuses to give up. Now let me ask you something. If this angel, uh, and perhaps the angel of the Lord, if, if this is this supernatural being, who could win? Who's going to win that wrestling match? The angel, right? I mean, if it's some specific manifestation of God, who's going to win, God or Jacob? It's going to be God, right? But it says here in the text that the man couldn't overpower Jacob. How is that possible? Well, I think about that because, you know, I have a grandson that's about three years old, not quite three, and sometimes we wrestle. Who do you think could win in a straight-up fight, me or my three-year-old grandson? I mean, I ain't as good as I once was, right? But I think that... I think I could probably still take a three-year-old. But do you think that it's possible for my grandson to wear me down? For his striving over and over? Absolutely. You know, for Jacob, all of his life had been a struggle. All of his life had been a wrestling with his father, with his brother, with his father-in-law Laban. But you know who the real struggle was with most all of that time? It was with God. He was striving with God. He'd been worried about his encounter with Esau. Now in the middle of the night, he's faced this guy that's greater than Esau. And I think he realizes partway through, this is supernatural, and I'm going to hold on for everything I'm worth until this guy blesses me. You see, it wasn't Jacob's physical strength 
that kept him from going out was his faith. Well, the man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and humans, and you've overcome. Now, remember, when Jacob was last with his father, three times he asked Isaac, or three times Isaac asked him, who are you? And he answered, I'm Esau. I'm Esau. When he's wrestling here, when he's asking for this blessing, a new blessing from heaven, and this representative of God says, what's your name? Jacob answers truly, I'm a grabber. I'm a con man. I'm Jacob. That's who I am. I own it. And God says, you know, we're not going to call you that anymore. We're going to call you Israel. And your descendants, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they won't be known as the sons of Jacob. They'll be known as the sons and daughters of Israel. They'll be a people identified with your wrestling with God. Isra, to strive with El, God, Israel. Here's a fourth observation. God sees beyond our reputation and he gives us a new identity. This is the beauty of the gospel, my friends, that it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. God sees it all, but he sees beyond it all. Not to what you've done, but to who you are and who he made you to be. And like Jacob, you may feel that your whole life has been a wrestling match. Maybe you've been wrestling with success or wrestling on being career-driven or maybe you've been wrestling with family issues or, or maybe like Jacob, behind it all, the whole time you've been basically wrestling God over who's in control of your life. Is it you or is it him? And like Jacob, sometimes it hits us in the middle of the night when we're all alone, when we're dreading something that's looming that God makes his presence known and says, it's me that you're wrestling. Well, let's finish up. God has restored Jacob. He's given him a new identity and now he limps his way into the future. He's still on a journey, but he knows that God's with him and he goes the next day out to meet his brother Esau. The text says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the female servants and their children in the front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And he himself went on ahead and he bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. And here comes the moment of truth. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. God has gone before him. Esau's not the same guy either. He's changed. Verse 5 says, Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously, graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. And next Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And Esau asked, what's the meaning of all the flocks and herds that I met along the way? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift for me. 
For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Isn't that beautiful? Jacob was fearful that Esau was bringing an army. Instead, Esau was bringing an escort to come and to protect Jacob's household. And he says, show off your family. Who are all these people? And what's with these flocks and herds that you've sent me? Well, Esau, they're gifts. I, I was hoping they'd make you happy. I've got to be honest. When I was reading through all these passages again over the last couple of weeks, this verse about brought me to tears. Jacob says, keep the gifts because seeing your face is like seeing the face of God because you've accepted me. You've forgiven me. And that leads me to my last observation today. When we forgive, we look like God. You know, if anyone had a reason to be angry and to stay angry, it was Esau. Jacob had stolen his future. Jacob had double-crossed him a couple of times. But in a tremendous display of grace, Esau comes showing love to his brother to the point where Jacob looks at his brother and says, man, when I look at your face, I'm reminded of God because the only other person that I've seen this kind of grace from is God. Friends, do you realize the power of forgiveness? That like Jacob's observation, we never look more like God than when we forgive people when we accept them. It's one of the most poignant moments of the crucifixion when Jesus looks down and says, Father, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Man, I guess I just want to ask, have you been showing off your God face lately? Is that the face that people see? when they look to you. It's a compelling face. Guys, how do rivals become brothers? Again. Somebody has to be humble. Somebody has to be forgiving. And usually it's both people. Let's pray about all this. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your kindness. Your kindness towards us that even though we're undeserving and even though we've been grabbers at times in life, you are gentle with us and you restore us. Father, when we read all of this narrative of Jacob and Esau, and man, it breaks our heart, God, because we know that that's not your desire for the way that people are supposed to live together. It's not the way that we're supposed to treat each other. Certainly not the, the way it's supposed to be in families. But we learned so much in this last exchange of how one act of kindness, one act of forgiveness, one act of grace can change the trajectory of people's lives and destinies. Oh God, would you give us courage to be those kind of people that extend grace, that extend compassion and forgiveness and give acceptance. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Folks, what we have studied today, I think, is a perfect reminder of what we're about to do. In communion, we see the face of God. We find forgiveness.
We're accepted. So, we're going to invite you to come to one of the stations to pick up the juice that reminds us of God's love and forgiveness, the bread that reminds us of God's care, to take the emblems back to your seat, and in a few moments, we'll take them together. Would you come when you're ready?